Well, every year my family launches the Christmas season uh, by watching that sappy old movie, White Christmas. How many of you have seen it? Okay, we have seen it so many times our kids can lip sync the words. It's, it's the story of Bob Wallace. Bob is a Hollywood producer. He's played by Bing Crosby, of course. And Bob's got an old friend from Army days who's hit troubled times. He bought an inn, a ski lodge in Vermont, but there's no snow, so he's losing his shirt. Bob decides to help him out. He's going to bring Hollywood to Vermont. He's going to put on a big show that's going to bring in paying customers. All right, so Bob's a hero, and in the midst of all this, Betty, one of the show's performers, falls in love with Bob. But then the plot takes a wicked twist. Somebody convinces Betty that Bob is really not interested in helping out a friend. He's interested in free publicity so he can make a buck. And Betty turns on Bob, and she accuses him of some, some horrible, terrible things. Now, you know, spoiler alert here in case you're going to run home and get this on Netflix. Okay, in the end of the movie, she you know, recognizes the error of her ways and apologizes to Bob. But, but before that happens, she, she badmouths him in the worst way. And so every year as I watch White Christmas, I get mad at Betty. You know, I'm, I'm speaking to my television screen. I'm saying, Betty, you're going to regret these words someday. There's something seriously wrong with a guy speaking to his television screen, right? But I, I get as mad at Betty as Elihu got at Job 3,000 years ago. Some of you were wondering how I would tie White Christmas into our current study in the book of Job. Okay, so we're in the third week of a four-part series studying the book of Job, possibly the oldest book in the Old Testament. I want you to turn there with me to Job chapter 32. Okay, Job chapter 32. This is the story of a guy who lost everything, lost his family, lost his possessions, lost his health, which is why we're calling the series When Life Hits the Fan. First week of the series, you know, we address the why question, why me? Which is what we, we all wrestle with when life hits the fan, whether it's something as small as getting stuck in traffic on the way to work, why me? Or whether it's something big, our spouse just had a stroke, why, why did this happen to our family, right? And then the second week of the series, we, we took a look at how to help friends of ours for whom life hits the fan. Okay, what are the, the wrong things to do? What are the right things to do? We learn the wrong things from the negative example of three buddies of Job named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Well, today I'm going to introduce you to a fourth friend of Job, Elihu. Elihu, as I said to you a moment ago, Elihu got as mad at Job as I get at Betty each year when I watch White Christmas. And, and for the same reason. See, the reason I get mad at, at Betty is because she falsely accuses a really good guy. And the reason Elihu got mad at Job is because Job falsely accused a really good God. Job falsely accused a really good God. Now, initially, when life hit the fan for Job, he was careful what he said about God. But as Job's suffering increased, as Job had to put up with three friends who were falsely accusing him of sins, saying, God must be punishing you, Job got more and more testy with God. And Job started letting God have it. He started saying audacious things about God, falsely accusing God, just like his friends had falsely accused him. Well, Elihu, a fourth friend who arrives on the scene, he can't stand to hear Job badmouth God. 
Elihu stays silent for a long time. You know, we're, we're about to learn the reason for his silence. You know, in that culture, he's a younger man, and in that culture, you didn't interrupt your elders. So he was waiting for Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar to run out of gas. And when they finally did, Elihu spoke up. And he began to correct some of the heretical things that Job had been saying about God. Now, just a side note here before I read an opening passage to you. Uh, last week, one of the lessons we learned from the negative example of Job's friends is that we don't always have to defend God when hurting people say offensive things about God. Okay, we, we don't have to rush to God's defense. It's quite natural when life hits the fan for people to burst out with stuff like, how can you let this happen? And don't you care about me? And God doesn't listen to my prayers. And last week we learned that you know, it's not a good idea to jump all over people who make those kinds of statements because hurting people are confused, they're frustrated, they're distraught. So don't rush to God's defense. God's capable of defending himself. However, however, today we're, we're, we're going to learn there comes a time when enough is enough. There comes a point at which this bad-mouthing of God has got to stop. And that was Elihu's position. One Bible scholar describes it this way. He says, it's not that Job once let slip an unjustified remark about God, but that he goes on and on and on saying bad things about God's justice and goodness. It is this sustained attack on the good name of God that Elihu cannot endure. It's for this that he must challenge Job to repent. Okay, with that as the backdrop, I want to read to you some of the opening verses of Job chapter 32. So if you're open to Job 32, let me begin at verse 2. It says, But Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzzite, that's a name to be proud of, of the family of Ram became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. That's the first mention of anger or angry. You're going to see it two more times. You might want to circle it in your Bible. Verse 3, he was also angry with the three friends because they found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. And so Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzzite, said, I'm young in years, you're old. That's why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a person. It's the breath of the Almighty that gives them understanding. It's not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right, Therefore, I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning while you were searching for words. I gave you my full attention, but not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say we have found wisdom. Let God, let God, not a man, refute him. Okay, so Elihu's really, really mad. He's mad at Job. He's mad at Job's friends. Why? Because they're saying stupid stuff about God. And what's, what's really aggravating him is that these are older guys who should know better. You know, they're, they're guys who feel they're wise because they're middle-aged. They've been around the block a few more times. And so Elihu says, hey, let me, let me tell you, you could be middle-aged and foolish. 
It's not a person's age who makes them wise. What makes a person wise? It's the Spirit of God within. Okay, that's why he says in the second half of, of verse 8, it's the breath of the Almighty that gives people understanding. Second half of verse 13, so let God, not a man, refute Job. You know, it's time to hear a word from God, Elihu says. Now, when you read that, you ask the question, how do we know we're going to get a word from God from Elihu? I mean, that, that, that's kind of what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar claimed, right? And they were foolish. They said all sorts of stupid stuff. So how do we know? In fact, you may have read this this past week. I hope you did your homework. If you did, you read chapters 29 to 37. And as you, you were reading through Elihu's speeches, you may have thought to yourself, is this wise stuff? I mean, how am I supposed to read this? Is this garbage like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? Or is this really good stuff? You know, there, there are some Bible scholars out there who say, you know, he's cut of the same cloth as, as those other guys. Don't listen to Elihu, Job. He's preaching nonsense. You know, but most Bible scholars say, oh, no, no, no. Elihu's in a totally different category from the, the three amigos. There, there are certain things that make him distinct from them. Let me cite you some of those things. Okay, for, for starters, we get Elihu's genealogy. He is the son of Barakel the Buzzite of the family of Ram. Now, you need to know in, 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 in the Bible, when you see someone's genealogy, it's a tip-off. This is an important person. This, this guy's significant. You don't get a genealogy for Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You do for Elihu. Secondly, the other three amigos each got to speak to Job three times. Actually, Zophar bailed before the third time. He spoke twice. Elihu speaks four times, one more time than the other guys. Another difference, Job interrupts. He rebuts each of the other guys. So Eliphaz speaks, Job rebuts him. Bildad speaks, Job rebuts him. Zophar speaks, Job rebuts him. Elihu speaks, Job says nothing. Elihu makes four speeches. Job never interrupts. Fourth reason, he's a cut of a different cloth. Elihu speaks, and when he's done, God speaks. You know, next week we're going to cover Job 38 to 42. Jot that down. That's your homework for next week, okay? God speaks. So Elihu is the warm-up act for God. Okay? And lastly, the reason he's a, he's a different sort of guy is at the end of Job, God scolds, he rebukes Job's three other friends, but he says nothing bad to Elihu. So, Elihu is a guy to be listened to. And the gist of what Elihu says to Job is this, you got to stop bad-mouthing God, dude. Okay, there, there are four accusations in particular that you got to repent of. you got to tell God you're sorry, Job. Stop saying this stuff. So let me give you the four accusations. You're going to want to jot them down in your, in your program because this is stuff, remind yourself, when life hits the fan for you, in a small way or a big way, don't say this stuff about God. Okay, here's number one. God has gone silent. God has gone silent. Job's got troubles in the midst of his troubles. He's been pouring his heart out to God. The only problem is God hasn't been responding. Or so Job thinks. So you know, Job complains. He said, you know, this is a one-way conversation. I can't get God to tell me what's going on. I'm begging God to talk to me, and it's like cricket, cricket, cricket. You know, my prayers are going no higher than the ceiling. God's giving me the silent treatment. 
You, you ever felt that way? You know, that God has been frustratingly silent with you when life has hit the fan? Let's take a look at Elihu's response to Job on this score. Just a couple of verses. We started in chapter 32. Flip over to chapter 33. Drop down to verses 13 and 14. Elihu says, why do you complain to God that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak. God does speak. Now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. In other words, nobody's listening. See, Job says God has gone silent. Elihu responds, no, no, he hasn't. He's just speaking in a way that you're not listening to. What way is Elihu talking about? Well, if you read further in chapter 33, he says God speaks through, through pain sometimes. We don't want God to speak to us in that way, do we? The famous author C.S. Lewis, an atheist who became a Christ follower, he puts it this way. He says, God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Isn't that interesting? When life hits the fan for us, we're sometimes certain that God is deaf because he's not responding. When the reality is, according to Lewis, it's we who are deaf. God's got to use pain like a megaphone to get our attention. Now, we, we don't like that. That's not the kind of voice we were hoping to hear. It reminds me of the story of the, you know, the mountain climber. He's hiking a path and he falls over the edge of a cliff. Fortunately, on the way down, he manages to grab hold of a scraggly bush, and he's hanging on for dear life as he looks. Whoa, it's a long way down. And it suddenly dawns on him, this, this might be a good time to pray. And so he calls out. He says, God, can you hear me? And God says, yes, son, I hear you. And the guy says, God, what should I do? And God says, let go of the bush, and I will catch you. The guy looks down. Up. He says, God, is there anybody else up there I can talk to? <laughs> it's, not, it's not that God's silent. It's that we don't like what we hear when he speaks, especially in our pain. You know, what is God saying to us when life hits the fan? Let, let, let me suggest several messages that God communicates through discomfort, frustration, even suffering. Now, you could probably add to the list. The list is not meant to be comprehensive. I just want to get you thinking. I, I know that these are ways God has spoken to me when my life has hit the fan. You know, one of the things he says is, rearrange your priorities. You ever heard that one from God? You're, you're clipping along in life at a fast pace. What's most important to you? Well, the Blackhawks just won the Stanley Cup playoffs. That's what's most important. Or we got a vacation trip coming up in a week. Or my, my wife and I were arguing about what color to paint the living room. That's what's paramount to us right now. And then you get clobbered in some way. You lose your job. You're in a car accident. One of your kids creates problems for you. And suddenly what was most important is not so important anymore. The Blackhawks, the color of the paint in the living room, you got to be kidding me. i got bigger fish to fry now. Let me ask you, would it take a life crisis for, for you to arrange your priorities, to put God-honoring priorities first? Is that, is that what it would take? Because God, God's willing to speak to you in those terms. 
if you want. Does life have to hit the fan for you before you say, you know, I really ought to be reading the Bible more or praying or making weekend attendance and worship services a priority for my family or raising my kids to follow Christ, spiritually mentoring them a priority or, or spending my, my money in a way that honors God and invests in Christ's kingdom. What would it take to rearrange your priorities? Because life hitting the fan will do it for you. Another thing I find God saying when life hits the fan in my life is, you know, you got to pay more attention to people in need. You know, it's amazing how we, we don't get other people's pain until we go through something similar ourselves. You know, they, they have a miscarriage, and we don't get it until we have a miscarriage. Oh. You know, they get cut from the baseball team, and they're moping about, and we're like, what's the big deal? And then we get cut from something that's really important to us. Well, now we get it. Several years ago, one of our WOW speakers was a guy named Jim Kelly. Jim is a Hall of Fame quarterback four times in the Super Bowl. He was here with his wife, Jill, and they, they were talking about not just his football experience, but losing an eight-year-old son to a rare disease. Life hit the fan. Since being at Christ Community Church, life has continued to hit the fan for the Kellys. Jim was diagnosed with cancer. He beat that cancer. Another kind of cancer popped up. We have an opportunity this summer to have Jim's wife, Jill, with us and their daughter, Erin, who just wrote a book. It's become a New York Times bestseller, Kelly Tough. It's about what their, their family faced and how God got them through. And they're coming in, in August, by the way, so if you're barbecuing with neighbors and doing canning hunger and getting to know the people on your block, this is a good thing to invite them to. But how life changed for Jim Kelly, this insulated superstar. You think he understands now people who go through grief, who, who lose a child, who fight a deadly disease? You bet he does. You know, when life hits the fan, we recognize that there are a lot of people in need around us we've got to pay more attention to. What else does God say when life hits the fan? Another thing he, he's said to me is, prepare to die. It sounds morbid, doesn't it? Maybe a bit overly dramatic, maybe a bit silly to you, like the line out of Princess Bride. My name is Indigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Okay. Glad to hear you laugh last night. A few people laughed. I can't believe the lack of culture. Folks who do not know <laughs> Princess Bride. Really. My friend Annie McQuitty, who, who's got stage four colon cancer, who wrote that book, Notes from the Valley, that I've been telling you about and encouraging you to read. Pass on to a friend, because it's not just about cancer. It's about any big life experience where life hits the fan. He says he's thankful for his cancer because God has used it to help him prepare to die. Not that he hopes to die anytime soon. But Andy says the truth of the matter is most of us don't think about dying, even though from the moment we're born we begin to die. But, you know, we're like Woody Allen, who said, I don't fear dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, we, we, just, we just don't want to be there when, when it happens. We don't, in a strange sort of way, we don't even expect to be there. We don't, we don't think about it. 
And so a life crisis hits, maybe a, a serious health crisis. You've got to recognize, am I prepared for what's to come? See, the best way to prepare, if you've never surrendered to Christ, let me tell you, Jesus Christ is the only one who gives eternal life. You won't find it anywhere else. See, you better surrender to him like today. And living for Christ is the only thing that gets rewarded in the next life. So you better start living for Jesus today. That's how you prepare to die. A life crisis will cause you to recognize it. You'll hear God say, prepare for what's to come. You know, something else I've heard God say, I'll just throw this last one out. He says, lean on me when life hits the fan. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 uh, describes a, uh, a discomfort, a life problem, an ongoing chronic issue that he's facing. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know exactly what it was. Paul never identifies it. It might have been a physical disability. That's what some Bible scholars feel. Others say, no, it's probably the fact that as a, as a proclaimer of Jesus in a pagan culture, he had to endure a unceasing persecution. So that's his thorn in the flesh. Whatever it was, Paul says, I asked God three times to take it away, and all God said was, my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in weakness. So you're feeling weak, you're feeling helpless. Life hit the fan and there's nothing you could do. Again, it could be something as simple as you're stuck in traffic that's stalled and you're late for work. And God says, you feel like this is something you can't fix, you can't change, good. Now lean into me, I'm in control. So we sometimes say God has gone silent, but he doesn't go silent. He speaks through our discomfort. He speaks through our pain if we're listening. So it's a good idea to say, God, help me to understand what you're saying here. Second accusation of Job. God isn't fair. Go back to Job. Pick it up. at. Uh, let's go over to chapter 34. Next chapter, verses 5 and 6. Elihu is quoting Job. He says, Job says, I'm innocent. God denies me justice. Although I am right, I'm considered a liar. Although I am guiltless, God's arrow inflicts an incurable wound. You hear what Job's saying? God's not being fair with me. I deserve better than this. You ever felt that way when life has hit the fan? You know, what, what did I do to deserve this? Job was not only angry with, with, with God at this point for seeming to punish him for sins he wasn't guilty of. He was also ticked off because he looked around him and saw guilty people going unpunished. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. I read to you a lengthy passage where Job says, don't tell me the wicked get punished. Because I look around and I see people stiffing God, holding God at arm's length. I see people living flagrantly disobedient lifestyles. And you know what? They're flourishing. And their kids are flourishing. So what's up with that? If God wants to punish somebody, why doesn't he punish the guy who's cheating on his wife? Why doesn't he punish the kid who's bullying other kids on the playground? Why doesn't he, 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 he punish the person who's abusing drugs and alcohol? Yeah, really guilty people. Why does God pick on me? Have you ever felt that way? You know, you, you get pulled over and ticketed for doing 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, and you're thinking to yourself, there were guys flying by me 30 miles an hour over the speed limit. What about them? 
Don't tell me you've never felt that way. <laughs> or you work your keister off for your company, but when they downsize, it's your job they eliminate, not the job of that lazy guy in the cubicle next to you. Or you're a fitness buff. Last night I said, you're a fitness butt. <laughs> it was a long time getting out of that one. You're a fitness buff. You're working out. You're eating right. And you get some dread disease. And you got lots of friends who are couch potatoes who've never been sick a day in their lives. Or last week during the storms, your finished basement took on water, but the nastiest neighbor on the block down the street, his sump pump was working like a charm and he was bone dry. What is going on here? Andy McQuitty, in, in, in his book, Notes from the Valley, he says the truth is when, when we say, why me, what we really mean is, why me and not them? That's what we mean. Why not them? God isn't fair. God isn't fair. How does Elihu respond to Job's accusation that God isn't fair? Well, Elihu gives Job two pushbacks on this score. First, Elihu spends most of this chapter, Job 34, pointing out that people do get what's coming to them eventually. Drop down to verses 11 and 12. Elihu says, God repays everyone for what they've done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. It's unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would prefer justice. You know, last week we learned that the people who disobey God, people who hold God at arm's length, they, they do run into serious trouble down the road, but we said it doesn't happen immediately. It may be five months down the road. It may be ten years down the road. It may not be until they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But disobedience does get punished because God is fair. Now that's a bit of an ominous warning to us as well, isn't it? If disobedience gets punished, we better deal with our disobedience now and bring it to Christ for forgiveness. Now, the second thing that Elihu says to Job about God's fairness, second thing he says is to challenge Job to take a harder look at his own life. You know, is, is Job really as sinless as he makes himself out to be? Maybe, maybe there's something in Job's life that needs to be repented of. Drop down to verse 31. Chapter 34, verse 31. Suppose someone says to God, I'm guilty, but will offend no more. Teach me, God, what I cannot see. If I've done wrong, I will not do it again. That's how some people pray, Elihu says. That's good. And then he continues. So Job, should God then reward you on your terms when you refuse to repent? You must decide, not I. So tell me what you know. You follow Elihu here? Elihu's saying, hey, hey Job, all around you, all around you, there, there are people who are regularly, humbly admitting to God that they've sinned. I mean, they're, they're even inviting God to show them their shortcomings. They're saying, God, if I've done something wrong, show me so I can correct it. So what makes you think, Job, that you can refuse to do your own personal soul searching? Do you really think you're Mr. Perfect, that you're Mr. Squeaky Clean? Now, if, if you were here last week, you may be thinking to yourself at this point, whoa, Elihu sounds a lot like Job's other three friends. 
I mean, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they, they accused Job of all sorts of things, things Job was totally innocent of. Even God had said that Job's life was blameless. So what is Elihu trying to pin on Job here? Is this another bum rap? No, we, we need to understand that when life first hit the fan for Job, it was not because he'd done anything wrong. In fact, just the opposite. Satan was attacking him because he was such a really good guy. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they, they were absolutely wrong at that point in time in accusing Job of having committed sins that God was now punishing him for. However, some time has now passed. And, and the fact of the matter is, Job has get, he's been getting more and more gnarly with God. He, he, he is now falsely accusing God of everything under the sun. He's treating God like his three amigos had treated him. So yes, it is time for Job to take a, a good look in the mirror to recognize sin in his own life, to confess it to God, to ask to be forgiven. You following this? Maybe an analogy would help at this point. Before Job's life hit the fan, his, you know, Job is like a glass of pure water. You, you look at this glass, pure water. Okay, but when you look more closely, there's this thin you know, residue of muck at the bottom. And you say, wait a second, no muck in Job. God said he's blameless. Yeah, but the Hebrew word for blameless does not mean perfect, doesn't mean sinless. It means that you're basically a person of integrity. You're generally speaking a good guy. That was Job. But nobody's perfect. Everybody's got that, that layer of muck at the bottom of the glass of pure water. So when, when life hits the fan for Job and the water is stirred up, what happens to the muck? Now permeates his entire character. It's looking cloudy. It's looking murky. There, 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 there's a lesson here for us, friends. When life hits the fan for us, our knee-jerk reaction is not to confess our sins. Our knee-jerk reaction is to say, I don't deserve this. We're protesting our innocence. You know, maybe we need to take a look in the mirror and say, okay, God, what has just come to the surface here? As my life has been stirred up, I'm seeing impatience, I'm seeing anger, I'm seeing self-pity, I'm seeing self-absorption. You know, this is why the, you know, the prayer that I read to you a moment ago, verses 31 to 33, is a, is a prayer worth memorizing. Look at, verse, look at verse 32. Teach me what I cannot see. If I've done wrong, I will not do so again. This is a good prayer to pray at the beginning of a day or at the end of a day. Holy Spirit of God, teach me what I don't see. You know, if I've done wrong, I'll stop with your help. Job says, God's not fair. He's letting sinners off the hook. <laughs> God says, yeah, Job, you're one of those sinners. Time to fess up. Number three, Job accuses God of not rewarding good behavior. God doesn't reward good behavior. Go to chapter 35. Let me read verse 3 to you. This is Elihu speaking to Job. He says, you ask him, you ask God, what profit is it to me, and what do I gain by not sinning? If you've got your own Bible, you, you want to circle the word profit and the word gain. 
I mean, this is the flip side of Job's previous complaint. Now, he's still wrestling with the issue of God's fairness. As we just learned, part of that fairness, on the one hand, is, you know, God's supposed to zap sinful people. That's his job. Now Job is getting to the flip side of that. On the other hand, he expects God to reward people who live obedient lives. There's got to be some profit. There's got to be some gain, verse 3, in good behavior, right? Now, in, in defense of Job, let me reiterate here that Job truly was a really, really, really good guy. You know, I skipped over today, I skipped over Job chapter 29, but if you haven't read the passage on your own, I encourage you to go back and read Job 29. In that chapter, Job describes all the good things he's done in life, and it doesn't even sound like bragging. It's just that he's making the point. He doesn't understand why the reward for all this good stuff is a bunch of trouble. I mean, that's, that's it? That's my reward? And I have to admit, as I read Job's resume in Job 29, I was really impressed with the dude. I mean, for one thing, he was like the Mother Teresa of the ancient world. He goes on and on about how he's cared for the poor. If somebody was hungry, Job fed them. If they lacked clothes, he provided clothes. If they needed a roof over their head, it was Job's roof. And it wasn't just his concern for the poor. He goes on to talk about what a faithful husband he's been. Never falls prey to lust. He's faithful to his wife. He goes on and talks about what an honest businessman he's been. You know, the, the, the kind of boss every employee wants. He, he goes on to talk about the, the, the fact that even though he's got all this wealth, he hasn't made materialism a false god. He honors the one true living God, keeps material things in their place. He says even his en- he's been kind to his enemies. I read all this and I say, boy, Job was a much better guy than I am. Which is why Job complains in chapter 35. So what profit is there in all that for me? What do I, what do I gain by it? A boatload of trouble. That's it, God? That's it? That's your thank you? Now, if we, we read the next few verses of chapter 35... Elihu responds to this complaint of Job in a, in a unique way. He, he responds by pointing out that all our good deeds are, you know, they're like a drop in the bucket compared to the awesomeness of God. So we, we don't like to hear this, but Elihu's point is that sometimes we, aggrand, listen, sometimes we aggrandize all the good we've done as if we've just helped God make the world go round. Now, I'm not trying to minimize or to denigrate our good deeds. Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 10 that when God makes us a new person in Christ, it's for the sake of good works. That's what we're to be about. So it's important that you be a nurturing parent if you're a mom or a dad, that you be an honest business person, that you you do your work as unto God. It's important that you serve the poor, that you look for a a way to serve the body of Christ, that that you give in a generous way to people in need. All of that's important, but at the end of the day, what do you expect from God? A brass band to celebrate your goodness? You you say, well, no, I'm not expecting a brass band, but okay, what are we expecting, truthfully? If we're obeying God, if we're doing good things. We're, you know, we're expecting healthy medical reports. 
We're expecting a car that doesn't break down. We're expecting kids that actually respect us. We're expecting an occasional promotion at work. We're expecting a, a Groupon for the restaurant we're eating at tonight. We're expecting a Cubs pennant. We're just throwing everything in there, okay? We don't ask for much. You know, God's job is to make sure that we are duly rewarded for every bit of good behavior. And when instead of reward, life hits the fan, we're stunned. I mean, we can't believe that's God's thank you for a job well done. Well, Elihu cautions Job and us not to make such a big deal of all the good we've done or of the reward we think we deserve. Now, I also want to remind you here of something we learned about rewards from last week. You know, last week we learned that God does reward good behavior, but not always immediately. It's kind of like his punishment for sin. It happens, but not always immediately. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, where the apostle Paul tells us it's only when we stand before Christ at his judgment seat that we'll be fully rewarded for the good done in this life. And so if you're faithfully following Christ, you have that to look forward to. Nothing has been missed. It's all in the record book. You know, I love the story of the two farmers, one of them a Christ follower. And every Sunday, this Christ-following farmer, he gathers his family and they head off to church. That's a priority. They're going to worship God together. But his neighbor, who's not a believer, ridicules him. He says, how do you expect to get ahead sitting in church once a week? I mean, you're, you're losing a day when you could be plowing or planting or irrigating or reaping. And the Christ-follower farmer just looks at his friend and he says, God will reward me at the harvest. Well, fall comes. They gather their crops and they take them to market. Who do you think had the greater yield? Call it out. Who had the bigger yield? Yeah, some of you guessed wrong. It was a trick question. It wasn't the Christ-following farmer. It was a guy who worked seven days a week. And so he mocks his friend. He says, what about God rewarding you on the day of harvest? And his friend responds, I was talking about the final harvest. See, that's the day we live for. We live for the final harvest. If you're saying, I'm not getting rewarded for my good. In fact, life is hitting the fan. You will be rewarded. The day is coming. The day is coming. The rewards are coming. Some of you have begun to tithe, for example. You know, you know what the Bible teaches about that. You know that the Bible says the first 10% of our income, every salary check, every bonus, we get, you know, goes immediately back to the Lord. That's the baseline of giving. Now, I know people who have begun doing that, and immediately they see God reward them. I've, I've heard people tell me, you know, I didn't think we'd have money to pay for our kids' college tuition. We began to tithe, and the money showed up. Or we got more customers at work. Or our debt began to go down. I've got a file folder full of people who've told me what happens, how God rewards financial integrity. But let me tell you something. You may begin to tithe today. In today's offering that will take in a few moments here, you may begin to tithe and next week lose your job. And you say, and that's my reward? No, that's not your reward. Your reward's coming. On the day that you stand before Christ, you will not regret a penny that you've invested 
in the Lord's word. It's going to come back to you multiplied hundreds of times over. And there will be remiss on your part for any stinginess or materialism where you kept back from the Lord. What's, what's his due? Good does get rewarded, not always immediately. One last accusation from the mouth of Job. God must explain himself. You know, repeatedly, when Job was debating Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, he expressed his desire to go toe-to-toe with God. See, if he could just explain a thing or two to God, he's sure that God would begin to see things his way. Well, Elihu has picked up on, on this bravado in Job, and he's just incredulous. He cannot believe the foolishness of Job's remarks. Does Job realize who he wants an audience with? Does Job really think that he can counsel the God of the universe and when he's done, God will look at him and say, now that's a good point, Job. I hadn't thought of that one. So let me fix your situation here. Thank you. You Job is ridiculous to think that the God who made the heavens and the earth must explain what he's up to in Job's life. But you know, we take that same approach With God, when life hits the fan, we demand an explanation. And the truth is, we wouldn't understand the explanation if it was given to us. And we wouldn't be able to detect, oh, that's that's the part that God miffed. Okay, he needs to correct that. How does Elihu respond to Job's cheekiness, Job's impudence? You know, all Elihu does by way of response is to wow Job with God's greatness. He just starts describing God's awesomeness as if to say, and so Job, this is the God you want to go toe-to-toe with? (laughs) All right, bro, but it's your funeral. Let let, let me read a, a portion of chapter 37. This is really good stuff, beginning at verse 14. Job 37, 14. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who has perfect knowledge? Job, you're just a guy who swelters in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind. Can you join God in spreading out the skies hard as a mirror of cast brown bronze? Okay, Job, tell us what we should say to God. Because, you know, we can't draw up our case because of our darkness. Should God be told, I want to speak? Really? Would anyone ask to be swallowed up? Now, no one can look at the sun, bright as it is in the skies, after the wind has swept them clean. Well, out of the north, God comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power in his justice. Yes, Job, he's a just God. And great righteousness he does not oppress. Therefore people revere him. For does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? Now I'm not going to develop this point any further because next week, you know, when we look at what God says to Job, chapters 38 to 42, your homework, we're going to see that God picks up the argument where Elihu leaves it off. I mean, God God just overwhelms Job with his awesomeness, and it absolutely shuts Job up. He stops demanding an explanation from God. Now, when life hits the fan, there are four things not to say about God. God's gone silent. 
No, he's speaking through your pain. What's he saying? God isn't fair. Well, he, he is fair. He does punish sinners, which is why we need to confess our sins. God doesn't reward good behavior. He does. It may not be today or tomorrow or next week or a year from now, but at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll be rewarded, so keep on keeping on. God must explain himself. Oh, no, he doesn't have to explain himself to you or me. When life hits the fan, that's what you don't say. Now, just a word about next week. Our speaker next week is going to be Jameson Ross. Uh, Jameson was a teaching pastor at our church for a number of years before he left to go back to school, get a master's degree in biblical exegesis. He just finished up that degree, and uh, we hired him for a year this next year to be an interim college pastor. So Jameson took a class in Job, and he was sharing with me one day what he learned about the end of Job, a startling insight that surprised even his professor. You get to hear that next week, okay? And that begins uh, my study break. If you're new to Christ Community Church, every year the church is very kind. They give me July and August to go study. So uh, two of those weeks, I'll take his family vacation. So I will, would appreciate any prayers on uh, my behalf as I regroup with family and we get some time together. And then after those two weeks, I hit it hard for the rest of the summer studying. Now, that doesn't mean if you run into me on the bike path or uh, you know, at some coffee shop or whatever, you should leave me alone, like, don't interrupt, he's studying. I hope if you see me someplace, whatever campus you're from, that you'll stop and say hello. I do want to say as well that, you know, one of the reasons I could do something like this, you know, I can leave as the senior leader, is because we have such great leadership across the board here at Christ Community. So, yeah. So, we have... Uh, you know, I think, I think Eric Rogers is the best executive pastor in the country. And we've got, we have got campus pastors. You know, Pastor John down at Blackberry Creek, I hope you'll remember to pray for John as he battles cancer. Keep him in your prayers. Pastor Andy at Bartlett, Pastor Paul out in DeKalb. These are really good guys, and they have wonderful staffs of people serving with them. So this is a great church. I just want to say, too, because this is kind of the last sermon of the ministry season for me, and Clayton's going to be, be preaching a lot this summer, and oh, man, I'm so thankful God's brought him to us. But I want to say thank you for your love for God's Word. I see it on your face every week. And even though I can't see those of you who are at Bartlett and Blackberry Creek and DeKalb, I know from what I hear that you love God's Word, too. And so I look forward to a summer of great teaching from the, the Bible, this Heroes series. Uh, in St. Charles, I will be slipping in and out. You'll see uh, Sue and me when we're in town at, at one of the services here. But just uh, thank you for the privilege I have of serving you in this role. 